Hello and welcome to the sixth and final podcast in this series by Arts Council England, looking at key digital topics brought to light by the Digital R&D Fund for the Arts. That's the £7 million investment in digital projects across the arts sector delivered by Arts Council England, Nesta and the Arts and Humanities Research Council in partnership. This final programme is about digital business models within arts and cultural organisations. They've had to move with the times and change their ways since the digital revolution. In this podcast, we'll be looking at many aspects of business models, including how an organisation called Digital Theatre is increasing audiences through its business model. There's three products at different price points, with the 48-hour rent being the cheapest, but we then also follow a film model where the most recent productions start at the highest price and then degrade over time. It's been proven that if you present quality content, then people are willing to pay for it. And we look at the possible impact of crowdfunding arts projects. Kickstarter opened up to projects in the UK on Halloween, and the first three weeks have been great. There have been about 300 projects that have launched so far. There's already been over a million pounds pledged to projects in the UK. And the BFI's take on how digital technology can bring in revenue. What we're talking about here is building products that have a longer-term value, and therefore they will take more care and curation, they'll take more time and effort, and they will also yield a much greater value. But first, my guests on the programme today, joining me here in the studio are the journalist Patrick Hussey, who writes about digital technology, business and the arts, Simon Tanner, who's the Director of Digital Consultancy Services at King's College London, and Peter Tullin from the online retailer's culture label, which specialises in selling art and cultural gifts. That's right, Peter, yes? Yeah, culture label's one of those very simple ideas, and we're basically selling art and products from some of the world's great museums and galleries, so people like the Tate the V&A in the British Museum. And Simon Tanner, you're the Director of Digital Consultancy Services. You offer services outside the organisation, do you? Yes, I'm both an academic at King's College London, but I work mainly with museums, libraries, archives, sometimes with media and publishing as well, to help them get the most out of their digital content, whether that's just about reaching their audiences or whether that's about thinking about how they can monetize that content as well. And Patrick, I see you're writing about digital technology, so an ever-changing game. Yes, I have to inspect my Twitter feed every time I write a sentence. I worked for Arts and Business for a couple of years. I started writing for The Guardian about the intersection of arts meets tech, and I now work for the lovely Aeon magazine, which is a new magazine publishing a long-form essay every day on arts, ideas, and culture. Well, let's start with the most fundamental issue in any business, how and what you're going to sell to your customers. One of the R&D Fund pilot projects undertaken by the London Symphony Orchestra created a new mobile app to help with their ticketing process. Joe Johnson, Digital Marketing Manager at the LSO, and Nico Kirpka of the mobile development agency Codime told us about the project. Inside the app they see the listing, but also we use push notifications for new events. They can browse the event, browse the information on the event, look at the map. They have an audio preview, they can listen to a small sample of the performance. On the evening of the show, the students will come to the ticketing desk and they'll have their mobile phone with them where the tickets that they've bought are stored. So when they come to the ticket desk, there is a handheld scanner, looks like a Tesco barcode scanner, attached to a computer and it actually scans the ticket code and says this is a valid ticket, it is valid for tonight and then she redeems her tickets for the venue. So it's a full chain of ticketing. It has a loyalty scheme built into it so that they can gain points for doing certain actions, buying a ticket, sharing it 
trying to encourage other people to come, bringing their friends. The person who's got the most points we reward with a trip to Paris with the LSO on tour. It's very convenient that I don't need to go print it and I can just yeah, show my smartphone uh, when entering. Well, it's very nice. It's a very modern way of getting a ticket. I felt it was very convenient, although when I reached the payment stage, I could only choose, I think it was PayPal, and like, I couldn't change it to another payment method. I think it's the interesting thing for us in the art sector is the art sector has to really think about the audience and audience engagement, but the arts also by nature is ready to explore things and do innovative new things like this project. It could work for pretty much anyone, we think any art form would be particularly good for museums and art galleries. There's new technology coming out, the new field communication where they swipe the phone on the way in and it pays for it in the phone. The next exciting phase is I think to completely drop the paper side of things and go purely mobile, purely digital. That'll be a big change. Nico Kerbker from Kodime and Joe Johnson from the LSO talking about mobile ticketing apps there. Nico was talking about the uh, completely paperless ticketing model. Simon Tanner, you're a digital consultant. We've seen the commercial sector embracing this sort of thing. But is the arts and cultural sector ready for it, do you think? I think the arts and culture sector is ready for it because, in a sense, all we're really doing is transferring an old business model into a new technology and using the new technology to get efficiency and effectiveness gains, which is going to allow those markets to be expanded for them to have different ways of reaching into the markets. Mm. So it's a straightforward switch from standard ticketing activities or standard shop type activities that they've been doing into a new medium with additional added value on top of it. So we're going to see the end of tickets at some point then, are we? I'm not, paper sure, we'll tickets. S- I'm not sure if we'll see the end of end of paper tickets, just in the way we haven't seen the end of paper money, but we will see a great reduction in paper tickets. Patrick, I think what you need for a ticketing thing like this is to mimic the actions of what they call a social reader. So you're selling tickets, someone buys it, they're already logged in through some sort of social API to Facebook, and it tells their friends, I just bought a ticket. And and Simon says he doesn't see the end of paper ticketing. Do you then? Yes, I do see the end of paper, and probably quite soon we'll be able to buy tickets with our eyeballs, Mm. but let's not go there yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's turn to another method of selling that arts and cultural organisations have been experimenting with over recent years, the online shop. Josh Greenberg, account manager for arts and culture at The Other Media, a digital agency based in London which has developed e-commerce websites for the Natural History Museum and the Royal Academy of Arts, tells us about key points to bear in mind when setting up online shops. Identifying the business goals is very important. What do you want to do? The business's expectations of an online shop. There's also a question about the range that's being sold online. And then you need to look at the users. What are the users going to want from the site? How are they going to move through it? How do you want them to move through it? And how psychologically you want to influence the user when they visit? And what makes their life easier? What makes it more likely for them to purchase? All of this needs to be taken into consideration. So the user experience, also the design, which go together. And then the platform that it's built on, it depends on how complex you want the shop to be how many uh, products you're going to offer, how it fits into your other back-end systems, which is the complex part. You know, if you use systems like Razor's Edge and Patron Edge for membership and so on and so forth, how are they going to work together? Are you going to sell that through the shop? There's a lot to think about. Josh Greenberg from The Other Media. Peter Tullin, you co-founded Culture Label. 
an online shop of sorts. You're working with other cultural organisations and selling their products online, aren't you? Absolutely. So, you know, we would sell, for example, uh, you probably don't know this, but, you, you know, you could pick up a, a limited edition by a Turner Prize winning artist for a couple of hundred pounds. And, you know, that was the inspiration behind the idea. We heard this amazing stat where Ikea is one of the world's biggest sellers of art. And, you know, maybe you pay £50 mm. for your Ikea wall art. And, you know, for not much more, actually, you can buy something which is very collectible, personal, inspirational. And, and we were basically the simple job which the internet does very well, which is to aggregate these things into a single place. And the unique selling point is that you are working directly with those galleries or those art centres, those arts organisations, and asking for their input. So as you say, w- what is on show, on sale on the website, is is curated in the same way that the gallery space is. Yeah, absolutely. In a sense, you know, culture label is curating the site as a whole, but each individual partner is selecting the things that they think are going to work for the audience. Simon Tanner, is this the sort of thing that arts organisations, if they're not involved in selling, selling their wares at the moment, increasingly they're going to have to think about this sort of way of monetizing their assets? Yeah, they really do, because actually it's what the public want in a strange way. You know, there's an element here of us expecting as much art to be as freely available as possible, as much culture as freely available as possible. But at the same time, there's this premium product which we want to buy, where we want to own it. We don't just want to be able to see it. So there's all this content which should be available through the websites, but at the point when I'm looking at that, I want to have as low friction as possible between me looking at that item on the website and saying, I want to own it. I want to have a copy of that. I want it on a T-shirt. I want it on a mug. I want to be able to send it to friends. I want to be able to engage with it and buy it. And there's an awful lot of cultural content which is not visible at the moment. And if we can make it visible through digital means, then we can actually monetize it in, in various ways. How far down the road are they? Most organizations at the moment are what, just dipping their toe in the water? Well, it depends. There's there's a real range. So you have organizations such as the Tate, the VNA, those sorts of organisations which are highly developed business models that they're working with. So the Victorian Albert, for instance, is giving away 28,000 images from their collection for academic use to be used in printing and those sorts of areas and is looking at that from the perspective of saying we're making money out of commercial licensing and doing a lot of commercial licensing and so we'll carry on putting our efforts there and we're really working on the shop front aspects to make these beautiful objects which are available in the V&A's collection both available to be bought as physical things but also that the images are being accessed sound and video is being accessed and being monetized alongside that Still on the subject of selling, let's look at pay-per-view and the opportunities for downloading or streaming arts events, including theatre, opera and concerts, onto your laptop or mobile or via smart TV, allowing you to watch and listen in your own time, in your own place. Those are all becoming increasingly available. The organisation Digital Theatre works with several theatre companies to provide recording and post-production services, making footage available to a worldwide audience. Sales and marketing manager Andrew Gervin and new business consultant Rachel Castell explain their business model. For anyone who loves theatre, it's not always easy to access. It's not always geographically easy or financially easy to access. And particularly for anyone who's passionate about seeing everything, it's difficult to keep up. So you would come to digitaltheatre.com in the first instance. You can watch trailers for all of our productions. There's three products at different price points with the 48-hour rent being the cheapest, but we then also would follow a film model where 
the most recent productions start at the highest price and then degrade over time. Once you have purchased a production, with a renter you would watch it online, and with the download to own we have a proprietary player which you download, which is like the iPlayer app, uh, to your desktop. The Samsung Smart TV app that we've just launched, to be able to watch it on your TV, you would go to digitaltheatre.com, you generate a redemption code, you get your digital theatre app on your TV and you type the four digits in and your production is there to watch on your TV for 48 hours. I certainly think that the alternative content model has legs. Event cinema is a big thing. I think that we're part of that process. It's about using technology to open doors and give people an access point and then encouraging people to get together and do things together and watch theatre and celebrate theatre. I think across a number of mediums, not just the one that we're working in, it's been proven that if you present quality content, then people are willing to pay for it. If you look at developments with things like iTunes and Amazon with the instant downloads, with ebooks, for instance, if you make it easy enough for people, then people are more than willing to pay for stuff. Andrew Gervin and Rachel Castell from Digital Theatre on their uses of digital technology to generate revenue. So from what we've heard there, opportunities for digital business models. But what about the investment that's needed to put these tools, these systems in place? Patrick Hussey, it can be an expensive business, can't it? I'm going to go as far to say that this is impossible for medium to small size people. If you want to digitise and televise, in a sense, your content, I'm going to quote Rachel Caldicott, formerly of the Royal Opera House, who said, you can't point a flip cam at Carmen. <laughs> you, you really can't do that. Just doesn't do it justice. That's not going to work. So, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I think what you kind of need here, and with so many things, digital works at scale. Okay, so you have to become the Netflix of theatre. You need sort of kind of a tragedy of the commons, essentially, and you need a digital layer on top of it sucking in everyone's content. Content's really hard. And also, if you're going to get to the kind of enormous audiences you need to generate money, you're going to have to have content coming from all sorts of sources. We're already seeing a lot of collaborative working. I mean, the Google Art Project is an example where they've been able to get all of these museums to offer their content. Mm. And it's seen on the Google Art Project and it's visible there. But there's no financial model that's underpinning that in terms of those museums putting their content out there. And we're seeing the same thing with other cultural organisations. There's always this question of who will pay and what are they willing to pay for. And with culture, I think we trade in a much more sophisticated way than just financial transactions. But it's quite difficult for these organisations to monetize that if you're not in the, right. in the top sphere of, of these organisations. Well, while we're talking about audiences, I'd like to move this discussion on to how um, digital tracking can help you understand audience behaviour. The British Film Institute published its five-year plan in October with digital technology at its heart. The organisation is using digital technology to help understand its audience better. Richard Ayers, the head of digital business development at the BFI, explains more. I'm always minded of the fact that relative to putting a billboard advert up or taking out an advert in a magazine or a newspaper or even putting something on the radio. Internet stuff, digital stuff, is always way more measurable than any of those things. For example, you can put tracking codes on. Fundamentally, there's always three things around digital that you look for, reach, retention, and revenue. And any one of those you're going to want to be able to track. So we do some quite detailed analysis of the traffic flows that happen on the website, for example. We know that 
X amount of people hit the homepage. And of course, we can see from Google Analytics the pull-through effect that there is into the CRM sections of the site and then into the e-commerce where we're selling tickets or selling merchandise. The best understanding you've got of your audience is when they buy something because that's the point when they have to put in credit card details and you can cross-match that and you know, have a much greater understanding about who they are. But you know, there is a certain amount of profiling. So for example, um, inside Facebook, we have a very good understanding of the kinds of audience who engage with us on Facebook. Now, it's not the whole audience, but in terms of their Facebook integration, we know the split of male and female. We know the age ranges. We know the kinds of things that they like more. And you can tell the same these days through Twitter as well. You have to be very careful in terms of audience segmentation. There's sort of real-world segmentation. There's the people who go to the South Bank. There's the people who are the members. There's the people who perhaps subscribe to Site and Sale magazine. And then there's their digital versions of themselves because a lot of people, they behave very differently online than they might do when they're buying a magazine. And understanding their digital behaviors is a distinct piece of work. And that's something that we spend some time doing in terms of you know, running the analytics and doing the market research to be able to really understand what's going on there and what they want out of a digital experience in the BFI compared to what they want out of us on the South Bank. Richard Ayers of the BFI. Simon, we heard Richard there talking about the use of digital technology to, to get a real understanding of the audience in terms of their habits, their buying power, what they're doing, where they're visiting. I mean, that is what you need to know then, is it, when you're developing a business model in the arts sector these days? Yeah, I think there's two things going on there. One is an engagement with what we might call the attention economy. So how do we get people to attend to us, to our products, to our resources that are out there? Going in straight away and saying buy something is not necessarily the most important thing here. It's about gaining people's attention and making them want to stay and be part of your community. It's about gaining trust as well, isn't it? Gaining trust in an organisation, feeling part of it. Well, this is one of the things that cultural organisations generally have is that they start off often with a quite a high level of trust. So you don't want to throw away that authenticity and validity that comes with being the place that is the expert in whatever the thing you're an expert in. And particularly with the BFI, where you're talking about a niche element of that very big media market that right. they're engaged with, the thing that they have is a high level of, of excellence. So you put that together with the second element, which is the tracking aspect and the sophistication that can be brought to that. And suddenly you have the opportunity to engage with people when they're willing to make changes in their shopping behaviours. There's been a lot of work done on this in the States, for instance, Target, have done an incredible level of research which allows them through the shopping behaviours to work out when their clients are pregnant. And they can often know when their clients are pregnant several weeks before the other family members. This is getting sinister, though, isn't it? No, and it can get quite sinister, especially when you send them vouchers to encourage them to come shop at your shop, and the other family members don't know. So one has to be very careful about what tracking means and where it engages and how far it goes. Tracking only really works if you've got volume. If you've only got a very small number of people, either you might be just as well doing a a focus group or some sort of feedback survey to get information from them. It works when you've got very large groups of people with big aggregations, which allow you to see how big flows of activity are going. Otherwise, it could be quite easy to get misled by the information that's Mm. being provided to you. Well, let's move on. And the BFI, uh, the organisation we were talking about, also plans to fully launch BFI Player by the end of 
2013. That's an internet-based system giving access to thousands of films in the British Film Institute archives and additional exclusive content. The BFI player is currently only available on Samsung Smart TV, but this may prove another way of generating revenue. Richard Ayers again. The BFI player is one of the key strands for us in our five-year plan. And really, at the moment, it's conceptual. There's only one live version. That's our first go on the Samsung Smart TV platform. Over the course of the next year to 18 months, we'll start to see more iterations, more technology brought into this BFI player, and it will start to exist on different platforms that I hope will include some exciting developments we're working on of doing things on mobile that include mobile and TV, connected TV combinations. In terms of the customer experience and indeed the uh, ability to be able to watch things with the BFI player, well, we've got a start of a 10, which at the moment is, if you've got a Samsung Smart TV, it's free to air and you can watch it. There's no cost at all. But in the future, might there be a cost? Well, I guess there could be. That is certainly not fixed at the moment. We've got a team working on the business plan and the business modeling. And of course, one of the most difficult things is You can't plan too far ahead in the future because things move so fast. Being able to work with Samsung has helped us hugely to be able to be a little bolder and use some of those skills and expertise that we've got and apply them to this new territory and indeed see it be successful. So it's that partnership with Samsung that's been the key to the BFI getting BFI player up and running. So is that vital then? Yeah, I, I would say, and again, some of this depends on which stage you're at. We've talked about how some of this perhaps isn't on always on the table for the smaller and medium-sized organisations. And we talked about ticketing earlier, but it's perfectly possible to use tools like Eventbrite, for example, where there's no upfront costs. You're paying a percentage, obviously, of a ticket price to Eventbrite for that service. But if, effectively, that allows you to have the technology for free. And it also utilises a lot of the things that Patrick talked about in terms of social. So when someone buys a ticket, you've got the ability to share it. And that's inbuilt because they're ticketing specialists and that's their particular business model. We heard the BFI talk about where it might go. And you could imagine a situation where actually if I'm on a train and I want to access that on my phone and be able to use that type of technology rather than watch it through my Samsung Smart TV, then I don't mind paying a little bit more because actually I'm getting access to the content that I want in a convenient form. Well, let's move on again and to the subject of donations now, giving money not just to arts organisations but directly to individual artists maybe. A new funding scheme which will launch in the spring of 2013 is hoping to be at the forefront of digital giving using mobile technology as its primary channel. The National Funding Scheme is aiming to raise new funds for the arts and cultural sector through mass giving from the public through SMS text, interactive voice response, near-field communication and, of course, apps. William McCower, the founder of the National Funding Scheme, explains that donation is about maximising what he calls the moment of impact for potential donors. So that might mean in the theatre, in the foyer, it might mean in front of the picture, it might mean when you're walking the National Trail or in front of a stained glass window. But that is the moment at which you have to make the ask and you have to make it easy for people to give. Because if you wait for them to get home, by that stage and log on, and by that stage they're feeding the cat or putting the children to bed, the moment of impact's gone. The National Funding Scheme will also collect donor data to help fundraising and development departments to work in smarter ways. By having a national scheme, we'll be able to look at patterns of behaviour of individuals and of groups, and that insight will allow us to perhaps change the behaviour of marketing and what are called development or fundraising departments inside arts, cultural, heritage institutions, which at the moment are mainly focused on high net worth individual gifts and government 
funding. But once we're able to provide them with the data of who is given the money, then they will become marketeers in the in the sense that, as everyone else understands marketing, of talking to individuals or groups and encouraging them to become friends, legatees perhaps, trustees perhaps, participants in their art form. William McCower on the model of the forthcoming national funding scheme. Patrick Hussey there, he's talking about the ability to buy data on donor behaviour. That's, well, I suppose, valuable intelligence, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is where this stuff gets very deep. I mean, you could potentially track a donor over the course of their entire lifetime. And so data also gets really interesting when you link it. So perhaps if you linked it to, say, if you worked with LinkedIn, and suddenly a little blip went off when, oh, these people have just become a vice president somewhere. That's the point that you want to start talking to them. So <laughs> They've had a massive pay rise suddenly. Well, exactly. Tap them up for a donation. Yeah, you know, there are fascinating databases, systems in place like Razor's Edge that track where you put which person sits next to which person that you're fundraising dinners. And you get this incredibly sort of 360 picture. If you add the real-time data, probably from another source like LinkedIn, you're going to get some pretty amazing Orwellian gorgeous data going on. That's probably why it has to be a national system. Simon? There's three main motivations for giving money. The ICE, so it's ideology, conscience and ego, you know, like this. I believe in what you're doing. I feel guilty about being so wealthy. I like to be loved. And so any sort of donation has the elements around that. So the idea of the national funding scheme is that you can donate directly to a specified, to a prescribed organisation. You're not just giving it to a central organisation who will then parcel it on your behalf. Yeah, and so there's that reflection back on what I believe in or what I want to feel good about, what I want to be able to tell other people I've done a good thing in relation to. And the digital opens up more avenues to to reach out to those donors and to have that reflective relationship. Well, let's look at um, at a different, though related, donation model, and that's crowdfunding. The concept invites your audience not just to donate, but to invest in your business or idea. This month sees the UK launch of the crowdfunding website Kickstarter, which has been around for just over three and a half years in the States. Kickstarter's head of community and its co-founder, Yancy Strickler, explains more about the organization's model. On Kickstarter, every project sets a funding goal and a funding deadline. And the way it works is that if a project successfully reaches its goal by its deadline, then all of its backers are charged and the creator gets their money and they go off to make their project. If they come up short of their funding goal, then no money changes hands and everyone just walks away as if nothing happened. It's also rallying people around an idea. Hey, you think this is cool? Great. Well, help us make it. And if not everyone agrees, then it won't happen. So everyone's motivated to get involved and to really spread the word. Arts funding is dwindling and there are cutbacks all over the place. It's really encouraging. It shows that people really do appreciate the arts, care about the arts, and they're willing to spend money to make sure that they continue to be an integral part of our society. And what these projects are offering is it's a sense of belonging. It's an emotional ownership of this work. Not only can you love the book or the graphic novel or the work of art, you also have bragging rights of being one of the people who helped bring it into existence. There are project videos, there are rewards that people offer for backers to get things in return, and there are also project updates. And so I think all of it together makes this kind of intoxicating mix of a story that we're all invited to become a part of and have a real impact on. Yancy Strickler, the co-founder of Kickstarter there, talking about one of the benefits being not just as an organization, you're not just getting money from donors, but forging or, or creating some kind of direct relationship. Those people are investing in those organizations directly. 
I think what's interesting about Kickstarter, and yes, there's that, that goodwill of giving and supporting the story and everything else, but it allows you to get very close to something. It does become transactional with the people that are passionate about what you do. So some of the most successful projects are, are actually sometimes even overtly commercial. You know, um, you look at some of the, you know, the sort of million plus donations that they've managed to achieve, which are around things like computer gaming. And effectively what people are getting back in return for that is, you know, a first copy of the game, yes. lunch with one of the founders. And actually some of the, the arts projects have followed the same model it's a chance to get close to the process to get close to the product so donation in some ways the kickstarter for me is a little bit kind of misleading where it gets interesting is around the kind of transaction and the organizations that do very well are the ones that are most creative about the rewards that they give back as well as obviously having a great project in the first place patrick which projects have been particularly successful at crowdfunding there's an interesting one at space hive called the queen's head what happened was they just needed to raise a small amount of money for it. It was almost sort of a, a protest regatta on Jubilee Day where they floated a massive papier-mâché queen's head down the Regent's Canal in London. Now, I think that's really interesting because that's satirical, that's countercultural. Would that have been founded by a public grant in the Jubilimpic year? I don't think so. So there may even be a countercultural element to crowdfunding, which I think is, again, very important for the arts. Well, let's move on again into a, a different type of business model, specifically in the world of music. The model around royalties for musicians has changed dramatically over the last few years since digital changed the way that music is bought and sold. Many musicians now make their work directly available on sites such as SoundCloud or iTunes. Some would say that the role of the royalty collection organisation is no longer central to a musician's business. Mark Lawrence, Director of Membership and Rights at the Collection Society PRS for Music, Tells us about the opportunities and pitfalls in the new digital era. It depends how you look at it. Has it created an opportunity or has it created a threat? You can start a career today by going into a recording studio and writing a song. And then if you're also the performer of the song and the artist, you, know, you can record it there and then onto a computer and you can get it on SoundCloud. You can effectively get a version of a license available or certainly copyright protected at that point. You can then market yourself viciously through social media from Twitter to Facebook and anything else in between and a reinvigorated MySpace. And at which point you've got nowhere near a record label, you've got nowhere near a music publisher and you've got nowhere near a collection society. So I think it is conceivable that very clever artists can find a way through to their market without the big machine that's always existed before. And therefore, that means that you may not spend so much time writing and performing. It means your business might not last very long. And I guess that's always the challenge of the music business. It's kind of an oxymoron. Which is it going to be, the music or the business? Because it's very hard for it to be both. And I think there's very few examples of someone who's equally adept at spending as much time effectively writing or performing as they are at earning the money and running the machine. Peter Tallinn, I don't think you sell music on your um, culture label website, do Not you? Yet. <laughs> <laughs> but the way that music, the music business has changed, the way that musicians can deliver their product to people, I mean, that is, has been revolutionary. Can other art forms, do you think, learn from that way, the, the way that they are circumventing the traditional, the big record companies and the uh, royalty collection agencies? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lesson in this for arts and culture. And what's fascinating here is, whereas some 
revenue streams might be slightly reduced, other ones have opened up. So in, in music, obviously, we had the big growth in live performance. You know, people got very passionate about the real thing. And actually, if you generate a huge audience through all of these new channels, the corollary that was actually you could then use that audience and monetize in a different way. And I think products is the other thing. So as music's become digital and less tangible, what's been fascinating, we work with a number of music photographers who are from bands actually as mainstream as Blur to people like Storm Thorgerson who did all those iconic sort of Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd and Led Zepp covers. You know, fans of his work or fans of the band are actually happy to spend, you know, 300, 400 pounds on a limited edition work because that's what they're very passionate about. So for sort of each door that closes, you know, the positive side of it is other sort of spin-off industries are coming out of that and you can see arts and culture can, you know, probably the same kind of models, I think. Simon? I, th I think there's a real problem for arts organisations in this area because what you have is commercial models which have a return on investment profile. So pound in, we get £1.25 back, we just do that lots of times, we're winning. A lot of the arts is public sector funded and it doesn't matter if you get a pound twenty-five back, you don't have the pound in the first place. So the investment profile just isn't there. You can say, I will get the money back, I will make a profit as much as you like, you just won't get the additional money. Or you have strange sort of Cinderella type business models that operate in local government where because there is centralised funding for an arts organisation or an arts activity, any money they make goes directly back to the central funding place and doesn't necessarily come back to them as a reward for all their entrepreneurship. And we never get to see it to actually adapt and build and act in an entrepreneurial way. So what's the answer to that? So Just cutting some of the bureaucratic red tape then or well, re the rethinking the way that uh, publicly funded organisations are run or can be run? I think what you see is a number of publicly funded organisations have set up business entities that run alongside them, you know, so that they can operate as businesses without impacting upon the core business of the cultural organisation to do what they want to do. In and the so same way that the BBC say, has its worldwide division, which exactly can... Exactly the same. Or the National Portrait Gallery has a picture library that sits alongside it and does those sorts of transactions. And in the same way, in some respects, that you have the cafes and restaurants in many cultural organisations are outsourced activities. Now, looking back at all the aspects of digital technology for the arts that we've explored throughout this podcast series, one aspect keeps coming up that digital technology should not be regarded as a quick fix. It requires investment, time, thought and maintenance. Here's Richard Ayers from the BFI again. Success of digital products is something that I think some people, they want overnight success. I suppose the principal thing I would highlight is that digital products are not campaigns. Products themselves, they need to have long-lasting value that work for the user and indeed work for the organization. And therefore, you need to put them out in the world and work on them and develop them and change them and iterate them so that they can adapt to what the audience needs and what the business models require. And then over a period of time, then you sort of maximize the value out of them. It's not so much a question that you develop a campaign as if it was like a marketing campaign. You develop a campaign, you put it out, you run it for X period of time, and at the end you say, oh, yes, success or not. Whereas what we're talking about here is building products that have a longer-term value, and therefore they will take more care and curation, they'll take more time and effort, and they will also yield a much greater value as a result of that. 
So for the final time in this series, let's do some all-important crystal ball gazing. What digital developments might be on the horizon that might provide new commercial opportunities for cultural businesses? Peter Tullin, let me put you on the spot first of all. might be something that's not even invented yet, but which might be invented in the next few years that would help cultural organisations maximise their commercial potential. Well, first thing is, it's definitely exciting times ahead because people are into this stuff, and I think that's the most important thing. There is a huge huge audience for what we do in the cultural sector. I think some of the biggest innovations might actually come from the outside in because just look down the road from here and what's happening in Silicon Roundabout. There are incredible technologies and companies that are being created. And I think when you take some of that innovation and you connect that with the right cultural content and the right cultural brands, again, if you want to call them that, then actually exciting things can happen. And to give you an example, there's one company which I'm a huge fan of at the moment called Retronaut. And basically this takes effectively archival images and they sort of send time capsules of five images a day, which could be, you know, David Bowie playing ping pong in the 70s to an industrial scene. And it's just one of those that's made for the new media age where people look out for these emails that they get kind of once a day. And it's now got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people viewing these emails and going to these pages. And it's archives. It's just archives packaged in a slightly different way. And it's a revenue model which is ad-funded. But also, if you take those images, you produce them as, you know, things like limited editions. There are all kinds of other income streams that come off the side of that. Uh, Simon Tanner, gaze into your crystal ball, if you would. Yeah, this is a very dangerous thing to do, because <laughs> I'm, I'm bound to be wrong almost before I finish talking about it, actually, like this. But for me, the gaming industry and visualisation is you know, a massive industry for us in the UK, and we need to support it and keep looking to that as being a real opportunity going forward for the cultural sector, because I think that there's just huge opportunities there. And I think there's two other commercial models which I quite like. One which almost always seems to be the bridesmaid, never quite turn into the bride, which is micropayments. And I think micropayments as a model could be really good for cultural organisations because it could have that opportunity of allowing people to just pay in very, very small amounts for the things that they want, you know, in that sense. Like what? Give us an example. Well, Retronaut will be a very good example of something where I would quite happily pay a penny a day for that, mm. as opposed to having all the advertising around it. And a series of, like of random images from the archives arrive in your inbox it's every day. It's absolutely wonderful. I have to tell you, it's one of my favourite things. You it's know, incredibly like addictive, this, isn't you it? Know. Yeah. And you have organisations like the National Library of Ireland, which does a picture of the day. Actually, it takes quite a lot of effort to do a picture of a day from your collection because you obviously want things to be relevant to that day. Mm. You don't want things to be the same. Now, that may seem like a tiny amount of income, but if you start multiplying that by the hundreds of thousands, then it's actually a reasonable income that's worth having. And Patrick Hussey, I'm going to give the last word to you, so go out with some real blue sky thinking. Really? Yes. Wow. There are so many things. I think data is absolutely huge. Real time. Look up Google now. You could start geolocating your art so it pops up on people's phones when they walk past your building. Geolocating your art? Yeah. So maybe you have written a play about the local war memorial. Why not have that pumped into people's headphones when they walk past? Then you could have a very atmospheric real-time placement of your work. You know... Digital is doing what art has always tried to do. It takes the ideas out of people's heads and makes them communal and plastic and interrogatable in ways we've never dreamed of. It's a creative, wonderful thing. It's also a potentially scary thing. If there's one sector that should really get down with it, it's the arts. 
Thank you very much indeed to all of you on that note. And although this is the last programme, we'd very much like to hear from you on the subjects raised in this programme and indeed throughout the series. Please do tweet us using the hashtag ArtsDigital. My thanks to my guests in the studio here today, Patrick Hussey, Simon Tanner and Peter Tullin. The Digital R&D Fund for the Arts is open for applications until the 30th of December 2013. To find out more information or to apply, visit artsdigitalrnd.org.uk. You've been listening to a podcast from Arts Council England. Don't forget to share and bookmark these podcasts on the Arts Council iTunes channel or at the Arts Digital R&D website, artsdigitalrnd.org.uk. Thank <laughs> you.